Welcome to the 28th episode of It Wasn't Me, a true crime podcast where we talk about murders and intrigue us. I'm Mercedes. And I am Cindy. This week we travel to Hebron, Kentucky, where an introverted genius was terrorized to death in a tragic game of greed and torture. Thank you for listening to last week's episode where we discussed a psychotic spree killer who terrorized New York City for 28 hours. Fair warning, our show can be extremely horrifying and graphic, and we will use offensive language. So if you have kids, put them away for a while and join us for a murder. Also, be forewarned, we are passionate and always have been about true crime, but sometimes we will make jokes and laugh during our podcast. For more information and links to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages, visit our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and give us a five-star rating. While you're there, leave us a comment telling us which murder intrigues you. And if you like our show, please consider supporting us through patreon.com forward slash pod. We appreciate our Patreon supporters more than words can express. Thank you so very much. Cindy, how are you doing today? I am doing well, Rona free. Yeah, hey, um, we're getting more and more cases every day here. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, my fa- I have my husband's family still lives in St. Charles. We did our first episode in, from St. Charles, Missouri, and my niece was telling me about like they have so many more cases than what we have here. You know, they're closer to a bigger city than we are, but it's quite scary. Yes. I have a, a good friend of mine who actually is from here, but she lives in St. Charles. And Really? I did not know that. Yes. Oh. Okay. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> we will. Because um, you know her mother. I know her mother. Uh-huh. Oh. Okay. We used to work with her. Oh, okay. Well, then I'm excited to hear this story. <laughs> um, yeah. So anything new going on in your world? Nothing for me. I mean, I can't even tell you. I did wash my hair yesterday. This is only the second time I've left my house in a week. Yeah. Hey, I appreciate you coming over. I mean, it's a big, it's a big risk for you. Yeah, but, you know. Hey, you know what? I mean, we are not social distancing now because we can't possibly be six feet apart right now um, yet. But, hey, I trust you. Yes. I don't know. I don't know. So this week, um, I have a great story. Um, But before we get to that, anything else? Um, Let's see. I've started watching... The Golden Girls from season one. You told us that last week. I'm on season four now. Oh, <laughs> wow. I, what else? Oh, I started, mm, I started watching Waco. Okay. My husband's like, he's finished with that All American I was telling you about last oh, week. Yeah. And now he, um, well, we started watching Ozark, which I tried to watch on my own before. Mm-hmm. Um like, I'm not into the drama thing because I have to remember so much from episode to episode. Right. But I do like that one. Um, he also started watching Waco last oh. night. So I'm kind of like half-assed listening to it, you know, thinking how much of this is real and how much of this is dramatized. So Well, I'm reading the book, too, and it's all about, yeah. based on the series is based on the book. Um, but I also watched the sixth, seri- um, the sixth season of Bosch, 
which I absolutely love Bosch. Yes, and you know one of your friends was acting in that before yes. he was pulled off, right? Yes, yeah. he was in season five, and he was in the first part of season six, and then he got his head blown off. Oh. Yeah, mm. but, Hey, you know. he's on to bigger and better things, right? Yep. Yeah. He used to mow my lawn, now he's a famous actor. That's so funny. <laughs> super funny. Yeah. All right, well, shall we dive in? Let's, Let's go. Let's dri- dive in. Give okay. it to me. All right, so... This week's murder takes place in Kentucky, and I'm going to start telling you the story about Walter Sartory, and I'm, that's how I'm going to say his name. I don't know if it's Sartori or however. Sartory is how I'm saying it. <clears throat> He's an older fella. He was born in 1935. He's the oldest child of Walter and Janet Sartory, and he did have a younger sister named Ida Catherine. Now, not much is known about his parents. He never spoke of them. <clears throat> he did mention one time that his dad was a painter. So I'm not sure if he was like a house painter or, you know, a famous artist. I'm not sure. I know he's not a famous artist, but, you know, he never mentioned his mother. And as a matter of fact, for the last 30 years of his life, he and his sister never talked. Not even once. They had had a huge falling out. And, and yeah unfortunate yeah he didn't he never married so he didn't have family he was pretty much a a loner is he like a recluse yes and we're gonna get to that okay okay so in his lifetime he was a brilliant mathematician a chemical engineer an inventor and a researcher he worked at the oak ridge national laboratory for 30 years in oak ridge tennessee The lab was actually built in secret for the atomic bomb project and became America's largest science and energy lab. I actually did a little bit of research into this place and they're still like one of the top labs in the United States. Oh, wow. That's interesting. I wonder if that's where the Oak Ridge boys are from. Uh, I'm guessing yes. (laughs) I am guessing yes. In 1977, Sartory won a prestigious award called the IR100 Award for work that he did on an automated three-stage centrifugal leukophoresis system. Woo! Now, that's a machine that made it possible to separate white blood cells from plasma and blood. So, like, my husband has this O-type blood that everybody can take. O-negative. O-negative. Like, he can't take in just anyone's, but he can give blood to anyone. Right. And so, he gets hooked up to this machine where they separate the blood from the plasma and his white blood cells. So, I'm guessing that's the same kind of machine. Uh, not a science person, so yeah, it's like n- the machine where they put it in and it like shakes it and it they like, can't see and- you, dear. They Sorry. can't see you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So anyway, this is awarded by Research and Development Magazine to the 100 most significant technological products of the preceding year. So it's very prestigious. Now, a nuclear engineer who worked with Sardi for years described him as very bright but very quiet. And somewhat frail. He said that Sartory is very good at his job. He was a nice guy. He's just very, very quiet. Like, you know, he'd kind of be somebody that was somewhat invisible, you know. Um, he His work on nuclear weapons remains classified. But he did publish pioneering papers on reactor design, medical centrifuges, and other subjects. He also held three patents. He's a genius. Obviously, right? Obviously, yes. He worked with the top minds in science and engineering, but he made them look stupid. Oh, wow. Right? Um, A biochemist that he worked with, and this biochemist said, you know, um, I went to Oxford. 
he said, this biochemist said that you only played chess with Walt two or three times because you were always humiliated. This guy further stated that he wasn't an amateur chess player because he did play chess for Oxford. Um, now, many called Sartori a savant. He was the type of guy that you'd refer tough questions to. So if there was a tough, a tough question, you always took it to Walt. Okay. So he's, he's like the top mind of the top minds. Like he makes the top minds look or feel inadequate. Right. Wow. Now he has a brilliant mind, but it's, it left him tortured and paranoid. You see, he was treated most of his life for paranoid schizophrenia. He battled social phobias that were so acute that he once turned down a high paying job because he could not sit through the interview. Wow. This reminds me of um, the movie with Dennis Crow. Oh, I don't even beautiful know. mind. Okay. A beautiful mind. So I haven't ever seen that, but a lot of the articles that I read through did compare him to that character. Right. Or not a character. It's a true story, right? Yes. Yes. That guy yes. actually won um, a Nobel Prize. Yes. But he was schizophrenic. Okay. So um, I did not bring that up simply because I had never seen that movie or read the book or anything like that. And I didn't know much. But yes, they, they compare like, a lot of the articles that I read compared him to the other man. Oh, okay. Yes. Um, when he retired, after he retired in 1992, he actually became a shut in. Like he was, he had phobias and did not want to leave the house. Mm. He shut himself in a tiny apartment and he used his algorithms to invest on Wall Street. So he built up a $14 million portfolio. The money did not make him happy. He, he couldn't go out and enjoy the money. Um, the voices in his head began to overshadow his life. Now, he, one of his delusions was that he believed that the CIA had him under surveillance using specially trained ants to spy on him. Did he know Maxim? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think he knew Maxim, no. Specially trained ants. Yes, yes. He did know a little bit about... Ant-Man? Maybe. I, I don't know. I don't know. But he he did think that specially trained ants were spying on him. Bless his heart. Now, you know, he was in a lot of top secret um, uh, scientific things at the lab. So, you know, that's that would instill paranoia in even right. the most normal because people. who the hell knows what they're doing right? in those labs? They and... could be training ants as we speak. Or robot ants or something. Mm -hmm. I mean... They get these ideas from movies from somewhere. Now, Sartre is highly, he's a, he was a highly intelligent man. And he knew that his schizophrenia was debilitating. It's not like um, with people who don't realize that they're not right. Like right. he knew he was not right. And so he took the steps to make sure that he was medicated appropriately. Um, oh, good. So in time, as therapy and medication improved, he was able to get out and interact with society. Um, he was still extremely shy and paranoid, but he um, he got interested in this group. And I can't remember the name of it right now, but I am going to mention it later. But I just want to talk about this group for a minute. It's a group of scientific thinking minds that are atheists. Um, they do workshops and tr conferences all over the country. So he was flying uh, to different places. One thing is that he wasn't really near an airport. So he, be, um, he decided that he was going to move. So he 
moved to rural, rural again, rural Hebron, Kentucky. Hebron? In March 2008. Okay, why? Why is your face looking like that? Because I hear it in my head as Hebron. (laughs) (laughs) What? What? Do that again one more time, please. Please. Like a donkey. Hebron. Oh, Lord. (laughs) I am never going to unhear that. Okay, so he moved to Hebron. (laughs) He moved to Hebron there because. (laughs) Okay, I apologize. Oh, Lord. Okay, he moved to Hebron um, because it was near the Cincinnati Northern Kentucky International Airport. He began began traveling quite a bit, as I said. It offered a peaceful rural environment. So he got out of, you know, where he was living, which was near Oak Ridge Laboratory. He had no immediate family, and he didn't know anyone in the area. But his close friends that he had developed relationships with, which I'll get into, knew that he had moved there. Right. It seems like a more desolate area might ease the yes. chatter and like the, t- I mean, I'm not schizophrenic, so I have no idea, but it seems to me that the the busier and the hustle and bustle would aggravate a mind yes. that just one didn't shut off and, you know, and has all this stuff. He's so smart. He probably just needed some time to like. Right. Not have all that going on. Not the traffic or whatever. Now, what I will say is that he was not like out in the woods somewhere. He was kind of in a subdivision area is what I'm guessing um, because he did have neighbors. Right. Okay. The neighbors will come up and they were, you know, not distant neighbors. So it's I'm picturing a subdivision, but don't ask me why. I I get these ideas in my head that won't go away. And Well, I mean, but it's not... But it is a rural area. So but it it's is, not, yes. you know, a busy metropolitan it's, type place. Right. It's not a place where there are acres between your neighbors. It's it's but it's also a place where, you know, the stores close at a, at, you know, nine at nine or ten o'clock. Right. Okay. Now he um like I said, he didn't have any immediate family. He didn't know anyone in the area, but he spent a lot of time online and he had joined um like some online chat rooms for people with personality disorders. So he knew, you know, he has a personality disorder and he wanted to talk to like minded people. And he ended up starting a relationship with a woman in New York who was intelligent, an intelligent woman. And they developed this online relationship. And so he flew up to meet her Mm. in January of 2009. They hung out for three days. I don't know if he actually had a hotel room. I'm not sure about all that stuff. But the woman said that on their first date, they went to a restaurant and he was very shy and quiet. She said, we held hands, but I'm pretty sure he had never held anybody's hand before. It's probably like a, like a middle school, you know, your palms sweating and. Oh, bless his heart. But I mean, that's good, though, that he joined this chat room in the hopes of meeting someone, like you said, like-minded, someone who's experiencing the same things that he's experiencing. Of course, you know, immediately, I think some shady-ass people are trying to take advantage of an innocent person, too. So, you know, I mean, I think it's pretty smart to try to, I mean, like when I was going through my whole, you know, with my cancer, my skin cancer, I joined you know, Facebook groups of people who are going through the same thing. Right, I'm because nobody through. really knows what 
someone else is going through unless you're experiencing that. Right. You I know? mean, you like, still have people who infiltrate those yeah. groups that try to sell you something or are just there to be obnoxious. Right. Um, so she said that, um, you know, they talked a lot during those three days. She said something stood out to her. She said that Sargery told her that government agents sometimes tampered with his car. She said when they went out to eat, he thought the waitress was laughing at him and he wouldn't smile. She said that he also talked about a pushy housekeeper back home named Willa Blanc. Sartre told her that Blanc wore big blonde wigs and rhinestone encrusted faint fingernails, even when cleaning homes. And she drove a candy apple red 2007 Corvette. Nice. So he's bothered by this woman enough to this housekeeper enough to tell this woman that he went up to visit. Now, despite his discomfort around most people, Walter found purpose in his atheism. As I said, he was an atheist and he was just a brilliant scientific mind. So, you know, I'm not saying that atheism is is my thing, but whatever. I teach his own. Right. But they uh, are kind of, you know, black and white. Um, I don't think that he was. No, I don't think all but atheists no, are. No, no, no. I think more Christians are black and white than. Yeah, you're right. You know? But I mean, he he a lot of. He needs he needs proof, and it's he's not just because he's a scientist. You know, there's yeah. it's not just a belief that. And when you say like a th- a scientific theory is not like oh I have this theory that the police are looking at me. That's not that his mind just doesn't work that way. He needs to see hardcore proof because he is a scientist, and a lot of scientists. Yeah, but a a lot of scientists also believe in theories like the quantum theory. And there's a lot of things like that that you can't prove yet. Right, but those theories, I mean, even like evolution is a theory, technically. But it's not like a theory as in like, well, I believe that. My theory on the matter. I mean, there's proof in that, right? yeah. Yeah. Okay, so he found purpose in this atheism. And he spent considerable time and money flying to and attending classes and even putting on conferences at the Center for Inquiry. That's the name of it. Now, at these events, he found like-minded people and information about secular philosophy. Uh, And this is um, secular humanism has to do with, like, doing kind things for, you know, being a humanist. So, you know, it was all based in good philosophy. Mm -hmm. Right. He formed some very strong friendships at these conferences. For example, he uh, made good... he, He... he became very good friends with a lady named Anne Carty and her husband, Robert. And Anne also had some, um, if I'm not mistaken, some mental health issues as well, which is why they got along so well. They would talk with each other for hours every day. And they would call and just chat. Now, they didn't, Anne and her husband lived in Virginia, so they didn't live near each other. Okay. Now, his tiny circle of loyal friends tolerated his occasional eccentric eccentricities 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 he was eccentric it was these same friends who called the police in february 2009 to report that he had vanished the voices in his head constantly told him that the outside world was full of mysterious and hostile people who were secretly plotting to murder him now in the end his worst fears were justified he disappeared sometime in mid-february 2009 Right after returning from his visit with the woman in New York. So he visits her for three days and he come, comes home. And a few days later, no one ever hears from him again. This is just so sad. 
It is because he was just finally like coming into his own, you know, yeah. his medications were right. He was, he was, um, he was at a good place in his life. He met a woman, he had some friends, he was traveling. So yeah. Now in the weeks before his disappearance, Sartory, then 73, would frequently complain to his friends about his neighbor's housekeeper, who we've already mentioned, Willa Blanc. She had become his most recent paranoid fixation. Um, he said that at first, uh, well, he would tell the cart, the Cartes, you know, this lady is just odd. She's showing up. Um, they didn't put much thought into his paranoid fixation on the housekeeper because, you know, he's, he's kind of weird sometimes. But when he stopped returning their calls or emails, they became very worried. So on February 26, 2009, Anne Cartier and her husband, Robert, phoned the Boone County Sheriff's Department to say that the 73-year-old recluse had vanished and he had not answered phone calls or responded to emails in 10 days, which was highly unlike him. Like I said, they would talk every day for hours. Wow. So is this when the police, um, the Sheriff's Department, they go out there and they do like a well check? Yes. A welfare oh. check? Okay. So they sent, um, the Cartes also sent police several of Sartory's recent emails that he had sent them. And in one, he wrote that he had changed his locks in case, in case Blanc had stolen a copy of his house key. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Okay. So maybe I, and I apologize if I missed it, but okay. So this is the, the neighbor's housekeeper. Yes. And does she just come visit him? You were going to talk about that. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. Okay. All right. So in one of his emails, he wrote, I do not trust her. I might be merely paranoid, but I suspect she might be running some sort of confidence racket or she might be casing my house to see if it is worth robbing. What's a confidence racket? I'm, I don't know what a confidence racket is, but doesn't it seem like something someone who was born in 1935 would say? Yes. Got your confidence racket here. Yeah. Yeah. I hear it in like a Dick Tracy voice. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So this is what the friends knew. They knew that Blanc worked in Sartory's neighborhood and she actually was cleaning the next door neighbor's house and she came over and offered to clean his house. This was in mid 2008, right after he had moved there. He declined. He didn't want her at his house, but she kept bothering him. Sartory also complained about Blanc to Anne Cartier. Uh, that he and Anne had met in an internet mental health forum years before that. And they spent, like I said, hours together on the phone almost every day. So he would tell Cartier um, that Blanc would knock on his door. And then when he'd open it, she would just barge in. And before you know it, she would be there for two hours and he didn't know how to get her to leave. I mean, I can just picture this, an elderly mm -hmm. person trying to not be too rude and a per pushy person. Especially if he's kind of reserved already. And he's frail and just very shy and reclusive. He's a perfect victim, isn't he? Yes. So okay. I looked up confidence racket. Okay, thank you. Or confidence trick. Okay. Which, you know. So it says that a confidence trick or racket is an attempt to defraud a person or group after gaining their trust. Ooh. I mean, it's exactly what it sounds like. A confidence trick exploits victims using their... Naive, uh, naivety, 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 incredulity. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. Compassion, vanity, irresponsibility, and greed. Even. Oh my God, he knew what the hell was happening. Yes, researchers have defined confidence tricks as distinctive species of fraudulent conduct intending to further voluntary exchanges that are not mutually beneficial, as they benefit con operators at the expense of the victims. Marks. So. 
I'm going to become your friend and I'm going to kind of like a caregiver who comes in and they're caregivers, but they con the people and they steal all their money. Right. It's the same thing. Right. Right. Now, and, um, and we're going to talk about this, but where we live, is it 62 or 65? Um, an elderly person is considered, a person who is considered elderly by law is 65, I believe. I believe so. And if you do anything like extort them or hit them or push them or whatever, mm-hmm. that is a felony. Yes, that is correct. And actually, so I am, and my mom is, so it must be 60. I think it's younger because, um, because someone pushed my mom at one time, like they pushed her and like that could have been battery on an elderly person. And she's, she's 20 years older than me. Listen, my dad and I still wrestle. (laughs) (laughs) Today? Now? Well, I mean, last time I was there, I think we wrestled. Yeah. I mean, we like. I need you to video this next time. (laughs) Okay. All right. So, okay. Anyway. Um, she said that they would talk every day and that he would complain about this woman. She, um, she said that when Sartori returned from meeting his new friend in New York, he, um, told Cardi that he found Blanc and her 27 year old son had cleared his driveway of snow without him, without asking him. Blanc handed Sartori his mail when he got there, including financial statements that she had taken from his mailbox. So she's there. She, when he gets home from New York, she and her son had, were there. They had just shoveled his driveway, and she hands him the mail. Oh, okay. Okay. And so she's imposing herself on him, and now she's gotten his financial statements. Oh, okay. yeah. And she's probably not working by herself, to be honest. Well. But, I mean, that's just my, that's my theory. Um, and elderly is 65, but my mom's disabled, so that makes okay. it different. Yeah. Okay. Um, now I just want to point out, I totally forgot where I was going with that. So no, I don't know what the hell I was going to point out. Oh, she got his bank statements. She got his bank statements. Oh, I know what I wanted to point out, which will probably come up later, but it's in my mind now. Remember that he had built that $14 million portfolio. Right. So he's probably getting. Okay. But but don't forget too, that like around 2008, 2009, that's when stock market dropped and he lost all but about 2 million, which it's still a good chunk of change, right? Yeah, you know, you easy 14. Come, four, you but you know what? I mean, I'm sure he was upset by it, but whatever. I'd be extremely upset if I lost $12 million. Oh, yeah. Me too. But hey. I'd he's be upset ex- if I lost $12. Yeah, me too. All right. So the Cartes, again, they call the police. So the police go over and they check Sartori's house. They go several times. They knock. The shades are drawn. Nothing seems out of the ordinary. They left notes under the door. Finally, on March twenty, uh, March 4th, 2009, they noticed that the garage door was unlocked. So they finally, and they go and start turning knobs. Finally. Yeah. Thank you. They enter the house through the garage door. They discover that the scientist had converted his living room into a monitoring station for extraterrestrial life. There were six powerful com- computers that were running a program that analyzed radio signals from outer space. He also had a lot of scheduled sartery, um, set precise times to brush his teeth, get dressed, and so on. And then he would check off each completed task every day. Well, he probably needed to do that yeah. to yeah. to calm his mind. Right. And I, I'm assuming that there's some OCD. So I, to this housekeeper here. has been, she's barged her way in and she sees all this. So now she knows that there's also a mental health issue, right? Well, and the neighbors might have known and maybe she overheard the neighbors talking. Oh, yeah. the crazy man next door. Right. I mean, you know how people are. And right. You know. 
Now, in the kitchen, the police found the prescription pills that Sartori took daily to ward off his psychotic episodes. He would not have left home without them. He was one of those who knew that he had to have his medication, and he never deviated from, you know, that task. So, for him to have not taken his prescription pills, they knew automatically something was wrong. Now, neighbors told police that they saw a van from the cleaning service Molly Maids in Sartori's driveway. Now, they called, the police called the company Molly Maids, and the company disclosed that Blanc, Willa Blanc, the lady who sometimes worked for them, told them that she and Sartori would be traveling indefinitely. So she actually told them, oh, you know, I'm traveling with one of my clients, so I won't be working with you. No, no, no. Mm-hmm. Someone who's paranoid like that does not allow people in his home. Well, and the thing is, is that she didn't believe that he had any friends, obviously, she didn't probably didn't realize like she knew he was reclusive. She knew that he didn't have family and friends around there. But I don't know that she would have under realized that, you know, somebody's going to call the police when he's not her friend. What an evil bitch. But it's still it's still been a few weeks, a couple of weeks at least. Now, on March 10th, Sheriff Chief Detective Coy Cox stopped at Blanc's two story brick home in nearby Union, Kentucky. So they go, they visit her. She told them that she had just seen Sartori in a grocery store. She's like, look, I'll call you when I hear from him. Hmm. Now, the next day, Cox found a letter in Sartori's mailbox from Fidelity Investments. So the detective faxed a subpoena to Fidelity, and and he learned that Blanc had (gasps) added her name to Sartori's brokerage account. Bitch. Cox raced back to Blanc to demand an explanation. When he asked her if she had seen Sartory, she seemed to have forgotten her story about seeing him at the grocery store. And she said instead, oh, I passed him in a silver Prius yesterday. She totally forgot that she had told him about the grocery store. All on the same day? Yeah. So Cox said, well, that's not what you told me before. And he said that she was totally cool, didn't blink an eye. She said, really? Well, he's fine. He's probably home now. So as Cox drove away, Blanc packed a bag and with her son left. Police were ready, though. Surveillance teams shattered the pair as they changed hotels and cars three times in two days and shuffled cell phones to avoid being traced. See, the son's in on it, too. Okay, so we're going to get to the son. Or is he like 10? We're going to get to that. Okay. Now, after she left, Cox, the detective, goes back and interviews Blanc's husband. Now, Blanc's husband is an electronics engineer. He told police that she had been his maid before they got married. I bet she was. Now, he said that she emptied his financial accounts, running up $500,000 in debts. And he found out that she had not been making the mortgage payments. So their home was foreclosed on in mid-February. That was just before Sartori disappeared. So she had so much time to pay taxes and so much time to pay off her um, her debt before they would foreclose on the house. Oh. The engineer also disclosed that right around the time that Sartori went missing, Blanc had totaled his Chevrolet trailblazer in Indiana. So she took her husband's trailblazer and had totaled it. And there was a police report. Um, He also said that she was on her way to rural Indiana to visit a friend with whom she liked to gamble. Cox, the detective following up on this lead, drove to Indiana and interviewed the police who responded to the accident. Now, the police said that Blanc was hauling a large plastic trash barrel when she crashed the SUV. She told police at the scene that the 50-gallon can contained firewood. The lid was fastened with a bungee cord and no one bothered to look inside of the trash barrel. 
Oh, really? She insisted. I they watch movies. Yeah, I know, right? Well, you know, she she looks like this, um, you know, she's driving a nice truck. Just she insisted that the tr- tow truck dri- the tow truck driver return the wrecked SUV barrel and all to Kentucky instead of taking it directly to like the first uh, place to what to drop your car off to get fixed. Red flag. Mm hmm. So that's a pretty far drive for tow driver, tow truck. I keep saying that tow truck driver. Um, now really expensive right. too. Yeah. So once they got back to Kentucky, Blanc and her son moved the trash barrel to a rented Dodge van. So they then got back, they rented a Dodge van and they transferred the barrel to that and drove back to Indiana. Now, shortly before the accident, just to say they stopped at the Argosy, which is a riverboat casino on the Ohio river because you know, she had a gamble. Oh Lord. Stupid. She, on the second trip with a barrel, she stopped at a bingo hall and played bingo until it got dark. Then they drove to her friend's farmhouse, which was about 40 miles southwest of Indianapolis. She was going to visit um, the farmhouse owner, Dwayne Lively, who later told police that Blanc and her son drove up, but they didn't stay. However, when the police were leaving, his daughter drove up, Amanda, and they asked her, oh, have you seen Blanc? And she told them a more alarming story. Uh Uh-oh. So... The dad lied, and she told the truth. She Good told, you, <laughs> right? She told police that Willa, Willa Blanc just showed up and said she had a large dog in the trash can, and she paid the dad one thousand dollars to help them burn it. So they all took turns that night burning the barrel and some old tires. Uh, if someone rolled up to my house and said, "I got this dog in the barrel that I need to burn," I would be like, "Hold up." What do I look like? Right. Do well, I, it, what if somebody said, "Ooh, but I have a thousand dollars." Um. Yeah, I'm gonna be fucking suspicious. Well, yeah, but look at us. We like no a thousand dollars ain't enough. It okay. ain't enough. Now, Blanc's son, according to Amanda, got third degree burns from turning the fire, and Amanda said that Blanc hadn't slept. Like she had talked about not being asleep for forty eight to seventy two hours. She was quite manic at this time. So using this information, police searched the area and they found charred human remains. They found a pair of burned metal rim glasses Mm -hmm. and they found steel tread from incinerated tires scattered in the nearby Morgan Monroe State Park or State Forest. So DNA later proved that this was Walter Sartory. I hate people. Um, This is uh, this this story really got to me. This murder really got to me because he was perfectly innocent. He was perfectly innocent. And this woman yeah. was a predator. And that's exactly mm-hmm. what she was. She was a predator. Right. And it's probably not the first time she'd stolen money from people. Well, and, you know, obviously she got this man, this um, em- engineer to marry her. And, and so, yeah, quite many. Right, right. All right. So please uh. um, issue arrest warrants for Blanc and her son, um, Wilkinson, Lewis Wilkinson. But they had taken off. But police spotted Blanc's Corvette at a red roof in nearby Sharonville, Ohio, and both of them were arrested. Because a Corvette is not inconspicuous. No. No. If you have to go on a run, don't do it in your red Corvette. No, dumb, dumb. Right. So Blanc and Wilkinson are arrested, and they plead not guilty to charges of murder, kidnapping, theft, and abuse of a corpse. They were held on a $10 million bail each in the Boone County Jail. Now, after his arrest, the son 
told officers that he was tired of his mother controlling his life and of being her slave. So he gave two videotape statements detailing the grisly details that spilled out at subsequent court hearings. Oh, boy. Mm -hmm. So Wilkinson said that he lived in the basement of the house that his mother and her husband shared. He came home and went down to his bedroom and discovered that Sardry was confined there. And this was around February 16th or 17th. He said that the elderly man's hands and feet were taped to a chair and tape covered his mouth and he appeared drugged. Now, Wilkinson ran back upstairs and his mother ordered him to stay in the basement and she locked them both down there. So he was a prisoner, too. Yeah. So he was ordered, you take care of him, make sure, you know, everything's okay. Um, don't come up. You're not allowed to come up. And here's and the thing. He's like, he's an adult. He's... He's an adult. Yes. But he probably lived his entire life this way. Exactly. So... So uh, when you're talking about culpability here... Um, is he 100% responsible? It's kind of like, you know, we're going to be doing a series on cult leaders later and people who follow them. But it, it is, um, you know, you're beaten down. You believe a truth. You don't want to fight back. You don't know any better. Right. So I'm not I'm well, not 100% condoning what he did. But um, and he knew deep down that it was wrong, but he didn't want the retaliation from her. Right, okay. because if you compare this to, like, people who live in really bad neighborhoods or the ghetto, per se, and they're like, oh, well, they're a product of their environment. Right. You know, but there are people who get out of that environment and make, have right. successful lives and don't become drug dealers and don't become murderers and gangbangers and all of that. But, like, in situations like this, I mean, you know, kids who are abused tend to, you know, there is a, you know, a theory that kids who are abused abuse. Right, right. So... Yeah, this is just kind of like yeah. one of those definitely need some forensic psychiatrists. And we're gonna in here. get yeah, we're gonna get more into this in just a few minutes. It's just sad um, all around. And for my everyone. you know, I don't know if anybody reads our blogs, but I did do a blog um on cult leaders. That's we're gonna get into that later. But um my next blog I'm gonna write about women like this, like this woman and the woman that you did who killed her husband. Um, I can't mm -hmm. remember her name, but yeah. All right. So anyway, he said that he's locked in the basement with this man and he pulls the tape from Sartori's mouth and the, and Sartori said, have the terrorists been paid? Oh, Jesus so Christ. apparently Willa Blanc had convinced him that, uh, and I'm guessing this is how she got passwords and bank state, um, bank numbers and things. It's like, you know, we have to pay the terrorists. Now, he had been denied his pills for several days. And I guess that when you, um, like, you can't just stop taking this medication. It causes side effects. And Wilkinson said that Sartori repeatedly vomited and would struggle to breathe. Wilkins Wilkinson actually said that he revived Sartori three times with mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. He never called 911. By the way. Did he have access to nine? Did he have access to nine? That I don't. Basement? That I don't know. But I'm guessing that. I mean, that was brought up in if the it court. Was stated he, that he yeah, must have yeah. had a cell phone or something. But he was scared. He was probably scared because he had been beat down and abused his entire life. Right. And I can see both sides. Right. And this is why when people say that jail is inhumane, that for people like this, I don't give a shit. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. So Wilkinson later told detectives that. He carried Sartory like a baby up the stairs at one point because he knew the man needed medical help. But his mother said, get back down there. You are not going any further. 
Now, it's not clear when Sartory died, but Wilkinson said that they stored the body in the trash can for two days in the garage. Now, my question, the thing that keeps coming up here is, the husband didn't know any of this was going on? That was why I was like, uh-huh. I had my finger in the air like, yes. Yes. Where was the husband so, doing all of this? I mean, if Sartory had his, if he was frail and weak and was taped, um, his mouth was taped, then maybe he was quiet. Maybe there wasn't much noise. I don't know. Um, but the husband was completely exonerated. He knew nothing about this. He must have been so far checked out of that marriage yes. because of all the chaos that their marriage was going through that right. he just didn't. And, I mean, who knows what kind of relationship he had with this adult stepson. Right. I mean. Right. Mm-hmm. If And if the son was abused, hell, he probably tr- she probably treated him that way. Right. He's probably kind of along the same lines. She was able to manipulate Shh, a him. A master manipulator. Yes. Yes evil fucking crazy person now before sartory died police say that he gave blanc his computer passwords and a power of attorney granting control over his bank and brokerage accounts he also appeared to revise his will to leave blanc the bulk of his fortune although police believe that the document is forged they believe that really wasn't his signature she withdrew two hundred and two hundred and ten thousand dollars from sartory's account which was a maximum available before her arrest. She was due, and before her arrest, she was due to get one point three million more the day that Cox sent his subpoena. At that point, Fidelity stopped the transfer. Cox also checked at the Chevrolet dealership where the SUV had been towed after the accident. A salesman there said that Blanc's got she erupted into fury when she learned that someone had already bought a brand new top of the line Corvette ZR1 that she wanted. The car cost more than $100,000. Holy shit. The salesman said she became very irritated, very angry. She told them she was about to get $7.5 million in cash. $7.5 million. Now, See, I don't me- think he had that much in his account. Now, he may have. I'm not sure how much he had in his account that time. I don't know. Maybe it's because we live in a small town. But I think if we travel on down to the Chevrolet dealership and we some spout some shit like this, they're going to look at us like, yeah. Right? Excuse me. So-and-so at the Sheriff's Department, we have, a, you know, Gary and goddamn teed, excuse my language, that if that happened at our Chevrolet dealership, they would have somebody. But she already had a, Cor- a red Corvette. You know, she she was kind of flashy with money and jewelry yeah, and things like that. Still, so I think that someone yeah. called bullshit with a quickness. Yeah, possibly. Now, when please search her home. They found a book with a title, something like How to Choose Your Prey. Oh, and it was a book like that? It was well thumbed through. I don't know if that's the actual title, but they did mention that in numerous articles. How did you, who writes a fucking book like that? Right? Right? Look it up, would you? I'm going to. Now, in her mind, Sartory must have been a perfect target. He has lots of money. He doesn't know anybody. He lives behind closed doors. He's trying to communicate with E.T. I mean, who would miss him? Plus, she's broke with a gambling habit and a taste for expensive jewelry and fine cars. And after gaining power of attorney over the elderly mathematician, she and her son spent vast portions of it gambling. They also, by the way, paid off their back taxes and the mortgage company. Oh, I'm sure they did. And mm-hmm. the husband didn't think, well, where'd you get this money? I don't even know if the husband knew, honestly. I don't know. Now, both Plonk and Wilkinson pleaded not guilty to murder, kidnapping, and embezzlement, but it was difficult to deny the paper trail connecting Sartory's bank account to Blanc and her beneficiaries, including her attorney and her mortgage company. She was left with some serious questions to answer. Now, the prosecuting attorney, Linda Talley Smith, was prepared to seek the death penalty, but both Wilkinson and Blanc decided to plead guilty because they did not want to deal with um, the death penalty. 
Willa Block was sentenced to life without parole for murder, kidnapping, theft, exploitation of an adult, and abuse of a corpse. Her son, Lewis Wilkinson, pled guilty to kidnapping, exploitation of an adult, and abuse of a corpse. His attorney stated that Wilkinson and his mother had a twisted relationship that contributed to his involvement in the slaying, and his testimony provided the evidence needed to nab his mother. Therefore, his murder charge was dropped. Hmm. So... They did realize that he was another um, a victim, m- another manipulated pawn in this. And so he did not get the murder. He got the kidnapping and all the other stuff, but not the murder. Wow. And I did try to look up how to catch your prey or how to whatever that stated. And, uh-huh. um, so I added the word con artist because it was talking about animals like deer and stuff okay, like that. Yeah. Um, and there are some articles and books on how con, con artists choose their prey, how they went over their prey. And she might have chosen a book like that and kind of like right. almost uh, no reversed way. it. Yeah. You know, what You're, do they call that? Um, yeah. Like deconstructed. Yeah. What, what, no one, none of the articles gave the exact title of the book and probably that was not released by the police. I mean, yeah. what, you don't want other people you to grab, get a hold there. of it, right? I mean, that's like, mm-hmm. what is that book that you can get off the internet that, why did the, um, the one about how to, make bombs right and yeah what's the name of that uh, book um who knows oh jesus i don't i don't if i said it you would know it okay and well, um i'm we'll gonna think about it that. okay think about it now in february 2010 ann carty and her husband remember she is his friend she's the one from sterling um, virginia she submitted an affidavit stating that Sartory had a will and a trust that specified that his estate be given to the Vanguard Fiduciary Trust Company or the Walter Kenneth Sartory Family Trust, which is a revocable living trust. Carty said that she was one of the beneficiaries of the trust. She hired an attorney to file a federal lawsuit on the estate's behalf, seeking more than $1 million from Fidelity Brokerage Services and the Fifth Third Bank. Those are the two banks that... Um, did not even check his signature. Really? Right. What? Yeah. Who was so, this again? Okay. Remember his good friend? Um, no, the what banks? Fidelity? Fidelity and Brokerage Third Services and Fifth Third Bank. All right. So his, is- okay, so his estate, one of these institutions to re- return the $210,000 and allowed Blanc, Blanc to tank from his accounts. The estate also sought to recover $1 million that Sartory's investment account would have gained had it not been liquidated at her request. The suit detailed how Blanc used fake documents, including a false power of attorney, to access the more than $2 million in his accounts. The bank did not question Blanc. They did not compare the signatures supposedly signed by Sartory against documents on file. And according to one source, none of the signatures looked anything like his actual signature. That's tragic. So all the documents, yeah, all of the documents that Blanc presented to the bank employees were forged. And I tried to deposit a check the other day. Oh, I know. For 14 fucking dollars. Right. And it said Jonathan and Cindy. Yeah. And our last name. Uh Uh-huh. And I signed both of our names. But because I was trying to deposit into an account that it's only in my name, they wouldn't let me deposit it. Right. But they allow this woman to, right? It was 14 fucking dollars. This was 2010. They've gotten a little stricter about things now. Well, I looked up that book, and it's the Anarchist Cookbook. Okay, there you go. I have heard of that. Yeah. All right, so both Fidelity and Fifth Third had several of his signatures on file, and they should have known the documents were fake, the suit states. And I agree. Yes. Yeah. 
Blanc used the power of attorney to have her name added to Sartori's fifth third account and then presented it to Fidelity and asked that $10,000 be transferred to the fifth third account, it states. I hate this woman. She then used another form supposedly signed by Sartori to transfer $200,000 to the bank account. Fidelity paid items that were not properly payable, the suit stated. As a result, Fidelity is strictly liable to the state of Walter Sartori for reimbursement of those items. She is a highly intelligent, manipulative woman. Yes. Hmm. Now, around the same time, Blanc told Fidelity that she wanted to liquidate his entire investment account and wanted a check for $1 million. So this prompted Fidelity to sell all of his stocks, many of which he held for 26 years. So while she did not get the money from the sale, Fidelity sold the stocks at the lowest point of the current bear market. Okay, so is there not any, like, red flags when people start doing shit like this when there's, like, a bunch of transactions all at one time and it's never the person who owns the account? Isn't that, like, or is she dealing with a different person every single time so they don't see that she's already done that? I mean, I don't, I I've have worked no, at a place I have before no idea. where there's records. And I, mean, you, I mean, I'm guessing a lot of this is probably electronic, but I don't know 100%. I don't know. Now. Well, I bet that shit's changed today. Yep. Now, she held, Fidelity held the account in cash, which deprived the estate of at least $1 million that the stocks would have made when the market rebounded. So at that point, it's no longer making interest or, um, or making any payouts on the stocks because they've liquidated those stocks. Fifth Third also allowed Blanc to use the forged power of attorney to add her name to Sartre's account and gave her access to a safe deposit box where she removed 13 gold coins worth $950 each. The suit demands that Fifth Third Bank pay back the $200,000 that she withdrew and the $12,350 for the gold coins. Well, good for them. It was initially filed on Boone County Circuit Court and then moved to a federal court where U.S. District Judge Danny Reed's issued a stay in the case after the parties told the judge that they would settle the dispute. So I don't know how it was, it was settled, but I mean, this is such a sad story to me because he was a brilliant, lonely man. You know, he had come so far. He never married. He was reclusive. Uh, he was a recluse, very few friends, but he started to make friends. Yes. He, started, he had a love interest. He, you know, he did what he needed. He moved to, um, he brought, Hebron, Kentucky, to get away from some of his fears of the CIA. He was taking his meds that were working. He was traveling. Um, he was making online friends. He was taking a chance and visiting a woman that he met online. So his life was just really beginning when this greedy killer cut it short. I hate her. Yeah. Now, to think that a man who's already paranoid and lived his whole life in fear of others could fall prey to something ho so horrific is heartbreaking. Her motive, Willa Blanc's motive for the kidnapping, torture, and murder was pure greed. She somehow lured this frail man into her home. So I'm not sure. They're not sure how he got, she got from, she got him from his house to her basement. But somehow she lured him in, forced him into the cellar, and tied him up. He was bound and gagged and deprived of his medication um, that helped prevent panic attacks and he survived a few days, but he became disturbed and he suffocated on his own vomit. Oh, mm -hmm. Jesus now, when Sartory disappeared, Blanc's $290,000 home was being foreclosed on and she owed property taxes. On, May si on March 6th, she paid $3,600 in property taxes due on the house. 
Now, Sartori's last known act before he disappeared was to send two dozen red roses on Valentine's Day to the woman that he met and he visited in New York. She said, the flowers were so beautiful. I tried calling him and calling him and calling him. And then I heard the news and I cried and I cried and I cried. So that, my dears, is the awful sad story of the life and death of Walter, Walter Sartory. That is freaking awful. Isn't it? I mean, I just have a love in my heart for this man, even though I've never met him. I know. Like, he did good for people. He worked hard. He built his life. And then some lazy bitch tried to take the easy way out. Yeah. I hate her. Again, I've said it a few times. Yes. Yeah. Well, she's in prison now. And um, now her son, I, I didn't include the prison terms. She did get more years than her son. But her son also got like 30 years or something. Wow. So, but he had said, I would rather live my life in prison than being in the prison of my mom's house. Holy shit. So he was free. I mean, he was so happy that he was free from her. So I also kind of have a tinge of a soft spot for him. Um, because oh. once the police, once he knew that he was kind of like safe from his mother's claws, he op- he told the truth about everything. That's sad. So too. he was, um, you know, his attorneys tried to say that he was not uh, mentally capable. Uh, you know, he, he was not competent to stand trial, but he was intelligent. So, yeah. you know, he, he did have some social issues and because abused, of her. Yes. Obviously. So, but you know, he was, he was found competent to stand trial. So, you know, he's like, fuck it. I'll just tell everything. And yeah, he did. Because he was like, yeah. he, he feels like even in the confines of prison, he is free. Yes. And that. Yes. Is so sad that that's your freedom. Right. Golly. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's Fuck. the story about Walter Sartory. But I just want to remind Ooh. everybody. Yeah. Right. That's a doozy. Um, um, that we are. I wanted just to remind you about our upcoming collaboration with Ariel Cooksey from the podcast Malice. Yes. Uh, we have a message from her that we're going to play now. Hi, everyone. I'm Ariel Cooksey, host of Malice. When violent acts occur, we tend to think the predators are monsters. Surely no human could do such things. But if we're honest, only humans commit malicious crime. And if you're like me, you want to know why. To find out, join me at Malice, wherever you listen to podcasts. Bye. Thanks so much, Ariel. We are so excited about this collaboration because we're going to dive into the minds of cult leaders and their followers. So next week, um, we're going to be recording um, Cindy's series on David Koresh and the Branch Davidians, which will be a two-part series. And you want to tell them what today is? Today is actually the anniversary of the siege on Waco, in addition to the Oklahoma City bombing. What is today's date? I don't even know. April 19th. April 19th. So today is the anniversary of Waco, the siege on Waco. Then it's also the anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing. Now, tomorrow is the anniversary of the shooting at Columbine and it's Hitler's fucking birthday. All right. So, um, hers will air on, uh, David Koresh story will air on May 1st and May 8th. It's a two parter. And then I'm going to surprise you all on May 15th with the story of a little known cult leader. So, um, yeah, I'm excited about that collab. 
So thank you so much for listening. We hope that you were just intrigued by this week's murder as we were. We appreciate sharing our passion with you, and we thank you for your support. If you'd like to support us even further, you can subscribe to our podcast and give us a five-star rating. While you're there, leave us a comment about absolutely anything. Your subscription and ratings are essential to our success and helps push us up the charts. You can do this on your favorite platform. For more information and links to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages, please visit our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com. We are so grateful to spend our time together to share murderous stories, and we really thank you for listening to us and supporting us and not thinking that we're weird for our obsession. We would like to thank our Patreon supporters. Thank you so much for our newest one, William. You guys are the extra. Now, you too can become one of our beloved patrons by signing up at patreon.com forward slash it wasn't me pod. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a rating. Thanks again, guys. And remember... It It wasn't wasn't me. me.